Hi, and thank you for listening to Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. This is Drew here. Joining me and Stephen today is Dr. Bradford Littlejohn. And where to begin? Uh, he has written so much. Dr. Littlejohn has done so much and has a vast knowledge of many topics related not only to theology, but politics, ethics, and how those relate to theology. Uh, he holds a PhD from New College, University of Edinburgh. His areas of expertise include Anglican theology, theologian Richard Hooker, excuse me, whom he has written two books on, as well as articles and various publications. Uh, also the Reformation, Reformed Theology and History, and political thought that stems from the Reformation, particularly the doctrine or teaching often called Two Kingdoms, which we will be just spending uh, today's episode talking about. Um, Dr. Littlejohn uh, is the president of Davenant Institute, which began in 2013. Uh, you can visit their website. Uh, it's Dav it's a D-A-V-E-N-A-N-T-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E.org. They offer resources, courses, and symposiums devoted to Protestant heritage. So, um, Dr. Littlejohn, welcome to the show. I want to get you to share more about, uh, before we begin with our main topic, to get you to talk a little bit about Davenant Institute and what they do. Um, I'll start with asking you about a quote on the Davenant Institute website that states, we share a common concern for the retrieval. This is what led into the founding of it, that you and the others, that you shared a common concern for the retrieval of classical Protestantism in an age when it had grown increasingly unfashionable. Tell us, what do you mean by the term classical Protestantism and what led to this concern that, that of, of yours? Yeah, great question. Um, and, uh, that's, and nobody's asked me that question in quite a while. So um, let's, let me see if I can kind of put the pieces of an answer together um, on the spot. But I would say that Classical Protestantism involves several pillars. So the first is it is magisterial Protestantism, as distinguished from the Radical Reformation, uh, the Anabaptist movement. And we'll bracket for a moment the question of whether modern Baptist theology and practice is is more, you know, how much of that is inflected by Anabaptism. Um, it, it's definitely distinct. It's not the same thing, but. Uh, so magisterial Protestantism takes seriously the role of the civil magistrate um, within the um, as as having responsibilities toward the church, and uh, and I mean that was the case that was the case during the Reformation, and uh, one of the the big questions facing a, a classical Protestantism today is is that still relevant at all? Uh, in our modern liberal pluralistic age, can we speak of our rulers as having religious responsibilities still? But um, I would say, I would say yes. I would say the circumstances are different. The principles remain. So classical Protestant, uh, classical Protestantism is committed to that. The religious dimensions of the body politic, we could say. Uh, classical Protestantism names. Not only is it, you know, it is magisterial Protestantism in distinction from Anabaptism, but uh, it is, it's, it's all the, it's all that the different uh, magisterial Protestants hold in common. So classical Protestantism names the area of shared belief, shared priorities between what we now refer to as Lutheranism, the Reformed tradition, and Anglicanism. And part of our argument would be that 
the differences between those traditions have been kind of overstated. You know, what, what often happens is due in part to kind of historical accidents and misunderstandings and geographical factors and so on, uh, different traditions emerge, different den denominational traditions, different worship traditions, et cetera. And then as those take on a life of their own, then they try to rationalize what, what makes us different. And then they come up with a kind of account of themselves. Why are we reformed and not Lutheran? Why are we Anglican and not reformed or Lutheran? They kind of increasingly, they increasingly define themselves over against each other in a way that if we go back to the 16th century, uh, the amount they had in common was vastly exceeded what separated them. Mm -hmm. Classical Protestantism, thirdly, I would say, understands the Reformation as a reforming work within the Catholic, small c Catholic Church. It's not a fundamentally new departure. It is not a going back a thousand years, 1200 years, whatever, to some kind of uh, primitive. It, you know, it does seek to recover the church fathers. It does argue that the theology of the fathers is, is more reliable than, than much of medieval accretions, but it doesn't deny that there were many important developments in theology and practice throughout the Middle Ages, and a classical Protestantism seeks to build upon that medieval heritage rather than simply dismantling it. Okay, um, it, and I know we, Steve and I were going to alternate questions, but um, I, I had a couple davenant things before we got, and I know Steve and I are really focused on getting to the main topic, but um, in, in connection to what you just asked, um, also on Davenant's website, um, under the mission pages, says that those calling for theologically serious but open-minded and dynamic retrieval of the past for the sake of the present have often felt like voices crying in the wilderness. And when I read that, I mean, I see myself as a classical Protestant that kind of fits in those um, distinctions you, you mentioned, what distinguishes a classical Protestant from, from something else. Um, so I could kind of relate to this and how have you seen in, in your observation, um, and experience in the state of the church, whether evangelical mainline or otherwise, have you, how have you seen, or should I ask, what have you seen? What is that has led to the marginalization, if you will, of the classical reformational Protestant perspective? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things going on there, but I mean, in America in particular, I think so much of what we're dealing with now is still downstream of the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early 20th century. And you had this um, deep, you know, deeply liberal trend in theology uh, at that time. And, and I mean, it's important to remember, you know, we're talking like when we use the term liberal now, it often means something different. We, we're often often debates within evangelicalism between like progressive evangelicals or traditional evangelicals may revolve around ethical issues and so on. And the other side still like, you know, believes Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, you know, that's not what we're arguing about, but in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, the liberals were really, you know, trying to kind of modernize Christianity by removing the supernatural elements from it. And this that was, was about, this is about a hundred years ago. The, the yeah, 19, 1910s, 1920s is when it's really hot, right? And so the leading intellectual centers of Protestantism, like Princeton Seminary, many of the great old seminaries, are increasingly filled by people who are trying to naturalize and demythologize and, um, yeah, just, just re remove the miraculous from Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
and so denying all kinds of fundamental doctrines, right? And uh, out of out of a kind of attachment to scientific reason, and and the the fundamentalist movement is a reaction against this that in many cases leaves these institutions, leaves the denominations, starts new institutions, and is focused on trying to hold tight to the fundamentals, which is these these key doctrines. But in this, it was kind of a, you know, jump overboard and kind of pile a few things onto the lifeboats and, and sort of set sail. And a lot of the party was to save orthodoxy. And a lot of broader doctrinal questions were just kind of left to the side in this attempt to save orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And, in, and you also had this suspicion of... Um, Suspicion of the intellectual life because the intellectual centers had all gone crazy. Uh, you had suspicion of appeals to human reason because reason was being used in this way that was antithetical to faith. And so you had this attempt to sort of cling tight to scripture and scripture alone as the, you know, as the only thing we needed for all of theology. And so jettisoning the role of um, of natural theology, jettisoning the role of church history for a kind of narrow biblicism. And this think, narrow biblicism, you would argue, is, is different from the sola scriptura principle of the classical reformational Protestantism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we can we can come back to that later, but just yeah. you know, briefly, sola scriptura and the Reformation is um, that which is necessary for salvation. Um, scripture tell, alone tells us, tells us, perspicuously tells us comprehensively. Uh, beyond that which is necessary for salvation, Scripture is a, a final norm, and since all other claims need to be tested against Scripture, but um, our knowledge is drawn from all sorts of sources, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and they were perfectly comfortable with that. What you have in a lot of 20th century American biblicism is an attempt to construct all of theology, and in some cases, all of ethics, some cases, all of you know, all of life on this on a Bible only foundation that uh, that also kind of ignores the role of of um, 20 centuries of church history in, 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 in explaining and interpreting scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think um, that kind of anti-historicism became part of the DNA of American Protestantism, but it's also the DNA of the modern world. I mean, the modern world is, we, you know, uh, you know, anything more than a couple of years ago feels like ancient history. We live very much in the present. We have the myth of progress in which we think that older must always be outdated must be less reliable and i think even evangelicalism kind of and this kind of goes hand in hand with the biblicism right if you think that all you need is uh biblical exegesis and hey we're learning more and more about hebrew and greek we've got biblical archaeology we're pulling up these manuscripts you know biblical scholarship cutting-edge biblical scholarship is always learning more and more about how to exegete well then why would you even read a commentary a hundred years ago why would you read a systematic theology built on that commentary? It's outdated, right? So um, I think this amnesia is just kind of baked in on both ends of the theological spectrum. There's been a big revival of retrieval theology in the last 20 years, I think, in all sorts of um, sectors of Protestantism. And I think that what Davenant is doing is not as unique in that way as it was even you know nine years ago when we started. But I would say, and then I'll, I'll quit monologuing, um, but one thing I would say is not, not everybody talking about retrieval is really doing retrieval. Um, that is to say, the most common form of retrieval theology is one that are, we already know, we already know what we think. 
We already know we're right. And so we're going to dig back and find this 17th century theologian with a nice long Latin name um, that has this great treatise proving why we're right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, reformed people love doing that kind of thing. And, uh, and other evangelicals are kind of getting on the act and now have you, you have all these searchable digital databases and the internet makes it really easy to find somebody in the past who said some great thing that backs up what you already thought anyway. Mm-hmm. What we need is a retrieval theology that is actually willing to be challenged by the past, that is actually um, using it as a resource for the present, but recognizing that it's going to uh, interrogate our own assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so on that note, because I think when, when we're talking about the concern, a lot of people try to retrieve things for the sake of the present without, without kind of starting with the with a presupposition of the present day and trying to, like you said, eisegetically uh, impose um, something from the past onto modern day things. So that kind of leads us into the uh, contentious area of religion and politics. So for our listeners on the podcast today, we're going to talk about things that you're not supposed to talk about at the Thanksgiving dinner table with your family. Um, (laughs) That is in the uh, intersection of church and societal life. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, so we're interested in what is called two kingdoms theology, which stems from the reformation. Um, and it's a kind of understanding where theology and politics intersect that traces back to the reformation. And even before that, um, as early as Christian thinkers, as St. Saint Augustine. So now Dr. Littlejohn, you've written quite a bit on this, uh, topic. Um, I'll recommend for our listeners, his book, Two Kingdoms Theology, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, which Stephen and I both read, um, prior to this episode, we both enjoyed it. And in that Dr. Littlejohn looks at this teaching of two kingdoms, what it is versus what it isn't, or perhaps how it's been misread in it, in the history of its reception, um, and sort of the practical application of it to the world today. But I wanted to ask some foundational questions here on the topic, and Stephen has some questions as well. We both enjoyed the book. Um, but first, uh, Dr. Lilzron, can you describe for us um, a description of, of Two Kingdoms theology um, as it originally was uh, conceived at the time of the Reformation? Yeah, so I think the first problem is the language, our English terminology here is unhelpful uh because a kingdom makes us think of a sort of a territory right your kingdom of france maybe right next to your kingdom of italy or whatever and so then there's a boundary between them there's one person who rules over one one person rules over another in this case the same christ two kingdoms same person rules over two you know this wasn't uncommon in you know pre-modern period same same king might actually rule over two separate kingdoms that had different um, you know, different laws and different, there was a border between them and so on. Uh, but that's not what we mean or what we should mean by two kingdoms. That that when we put it that way, we, we think in terms of a spatialized division. Okay, Christ is ruling over these two different spheres of human life. Where's the boundary line between? Okay, there's the spiritual sphere. Uh, that's that's Then there's the temporal sphere, and then they don't, they shouldn't, intersect each other because i mean you got a border between them right france is not in italy and italy is not in france uh now this is partly it's a translation problem the word that's translated kingdoms was maybe better translated rules uh rules or reigns um 
It was Reich, right? From the German. Yeah, the Reich, the German Reich. Yeah. So <laughs> has um, taken a whole new meaning on in the past century. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, or in Latin, you know, regnum. You know, it would be regnum. So uh, the idea here is there are Christ's two reigns. Christ reigns over all things in two modes. He reigns over things in a temporal mode and in a spiritual mode. The spiritual mode, he does so directly and salvifically. It's the order of grace. The temporal mode, he does so indirectly through uh, visible intermediaries um, and through, through human laws. So what this means is that, uh, in, so the, the idea here in, in, in Reformation theology was to say, uh, to just it, it, it kind of parallel the distinction between faith. You, I mean, with with caution, you can kind of map it on to the distinction between faith and works, justification, sanctification. Uh, the point was that Christ uh, Christ acts directly in saving uh, in saving each believer. Uh, and that is a hidden work of Christ in the heart. Uh, yes, he make he does he makes use of visible media for that. He uses the word. He uses the sacraments. Uh, but there is no human authority over that realm. Christ alone rules over the heart salvifically. Nobody else can tell you what you need to do to be saved. Only. Only God can do that. Another person can, I mean, they can tell you in the sense of here's what the Bible says. They can't add to it, right? There's no room for human discretion. The temporal kingdom is every one thing that is subject to human discretion, right? Everything in which you can say, um, you know, the Bible says this, but also, but the Bible doesn't tell us about this. And so here's what we're going to do, right? Uh, so for our, for ordering our external lives, for ordering our horizontal relations, and this is, so I to talk about Maybe think of two kingdoms in terms of two dimensions. The spiritual kingdom is the vertical dimension, our, our Godward relation that intersects every area of life. Temporal kingdom is how we think about our horizontal relationships. And those horizontal relationships require prudence. They require human, they require human authorities, they require human lawmaking. Uh, and part of it is means part of the way this distinction operates is the spiritual kingdom, scripture alone is operative. This is the spiritual kingdom is the domain in which scripture alone is operative. The temporal kingdom, scripture is operative. Scripture does speak to temporal kingdom issues, but it doesn't do so exhaustively. And so scripture operates alongside other forms of authority in that domain. So as I was, uh, as I was reading your book and thinking through this, this is a, a new subject to me. I didn't grow up um, uh, Lutheran or Reformed or anything like that. So it's fairly new to me. Um, and I was trying to figure out, uh, and it was very helpful in your book, how you explained it, but the, the, what the analogy that I got was um, in Jesus's parable, not parable, but Jesus's uh, command uh, on the Sermon on the Mount about when someone, when Roman soldiers ask you to walk with them one mile, instead go with them two. Um, but the temporal kingdom would be the, the obeying Christ by obeying the, the rule of the land, that he should walk one mile. But when Jesus gave them that, uh, that command, he spoke directly to them in conscience, um, and now they're inwardly, they are uh, under his command to walk a second mile with this person. Um, and those are, that's the analogy that I thought of. Am I on the right track there? Or Yeah, it's interesting. Nobody's ever brought that passage up to me in this connection. Um, you know, 
you're getting there to kind of distinction. The medievals would capture that in terms of distinction between the commandments and the councils. Um, um, I don't, I don't know that I would use that as an example for thinking about it because that's still, uh, I mean, for one thing, the the form and what the form in which Christ is teaching there, right? Is he he's teaching through uh, through parables, through metaphors and illustrations and um, hyperbole and so on. So is this a you know is this a literal command? Uh, you know, walk with them exactly two miles, then stop. Or is it kind of giving you a a principle for how you should think about your relationship to your your oppressor? You know, sort of. I mean, we use we use the expression "go the extra mile," right? right. We use the expression "go the extra mile." We use it in a kind of broad metaphorical sense, and I think Jesus is also inviting us to use in a broad meta, sure. inviting the first introduced to use in a broad metaphorical sense. Think about how you can go above and beyond in blessing in blessing your persecutor. Right. which is uh, thinking about how you conduct yourself. That's still thinking how you conduct yourself in the temporal kingdom into your, in your interpersonal relationships. As I said, think of the temporal kingdom as your horizontal relationships, the spiritual kingdom as uh, your duties to God specifically. Okay. So I would call that a kind of, um, you know, spiritual kingdom wisdom for life in the temporal kingdom. Okay. Well, let me let me ask one clarifying question. And so, where does the where does the line go when God uh, say you know you feel impressed by the Spirit to uh, you know to to give someone something? I think you used an example like this in the book to um, to take care of a needy person in particular. That doesn't relate to your salvation, right? And it is outward in its in its act, but it is a, a matter of obedience or disobedience whether you do it or not to God. So how, how does that fit? Right. Um, okay. So, right. So both dimensions are, are, are operative there. Um, the, I think the point is the point that I'm trying to get at is in that situation, there is, there is no divine command telling you exactly how you're supposed to respond in that situation. Uh, you have a duty before God to be open-hearted and generous uh, to the needy. You also have a duty. You have then you have you also have duty before God to be, um, you know, <clears throat> provide for your own family. So then, how do you balance those two duties in the practical affairs of everyday life? That's a, a temporal kingdom judgment, and so that every time you are confronted with a a needy person, you have to make a prudential decision. What is the right balance here between uh, generosity and, um, you know, stewardship? Mm -hmm. That what is going to guide you there? Uh, the spirit is going to guide you, yes, um, but reason is also going to guide you. And uh, the practical constraints and circumstances are going to come in. And that is, so that is a, a temporal kingdom judgment. Uh, and again, the, the the point trying to get it is, if if it's if if there's room for prudence, then it, we're talking about a temporal kingdom issue. Okay. If it is a black and white, um, 
if the black and white question, we're talking about a spiritual kingdom issue. Your book talks a lot about how the, the Christian, I guess the human, I guess is unique in the sense that they, the soul, I'll put it that way. I, and I don't know if I'm um, accurately, I, I'm, I'm thinking this is what the book basically said that the soul has the unique situation of being having like a foot in both kingdoms at once um, in spiritual and temporal. And uh, and that kind of goes into, you know, Stephen's mentioning these like situations that are real world situations that a lot of us come across um, that uh, are, you know, where, where that touches in both of these dimensions of spiritual kingdom, temporal kingdom, but tying it back to the, to the history now um, with Luther, uh, Luther, you know, who came up with this concept, it, he, the, the first person to use the term Zweireich, <laughs> this concept, um, and it was foundational for his understanding of how we as humans, how the role we play in society in everyday life and his understanding of vocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give us how, uh, how, how is it that Luther's social thought, um, his practical social thought hinges on this two kingdoms idea? Sure. So, you know, the, the starting point for a lot of Luther's thought, or not, I mean, not the starting point necessarily uh, historically, but in terms of if you want to kind of find a kind of foundational exposition, is his treatise on the freedom of a Christian, right? And the freedom of a Christian, he famously says, a Christian is perfectly free Lord of all and uh, the most dutiful servant of all, right? Mm-hmm. And this, this is, this also kind of maps onto his two kingdoms distinction. That is, from the standpoint of the spiritual kingdom, the Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all. No, nobody, nobody can boss my conscience around. Into, nobody can get between my conscience and God. Um, and I am, I, I possess all things in Christ. Right? I am. Um, I don't. I have no need of. I have no need of anything else. And so that's, that's, I mean, that is what, what is it to be free? It is to have no need of, of not be dependent on anyone or anything. And so because you are dependent on Christ alone, you are free with relation to everyone else. Um, but uh, we still live in this world. And so we have been set free by Christ for, to be a dutiful servant of all. And for Luther, Part of the, the the beauty of that that kind of that radical disjunction is it's precisely because of that that first part, the perfectly free Lord of all, that we can be the dutiful servant of all. Why? Because if we were not, um, if we didn't have this this radical uh, assurance by faith that we had uh, we had been set free and uh, received all things in Christ through Christ's action alone, then what we do, we would seek to earn that status. We would seek to earn God's favor by doing good works. This was the medieval spirituality in which Luther was formed. And so then service of neighbor would always become uh, instrumentalized, right? Why am I giving alms to the poor? Well, I'm giving alms to the poor because um, I'm earning some spiritual brownie points because I'm feeling really insecure in my conscience, right? Uh, Well, Luther wants... You know, come again. Yeah, this is you know, the example that Stephen was raising. You know, what Luther wants is that whole that decision about do I give alms to this particular poor person? 
to have to be recontextualized and not be um, not be afraid of divine judgment. Uh, am I giving? Am I doing enough? Am I giving enough alms to the poor? Uh, but rather set free by by the the gospel of justification, and then say, okay, what does what does my poor brother need? What is my what is my uh, poor actual actual brother, biological brother? You know, like my my my, my biological brother is uh, in tough financial straits, so maybe maybe I need to not give to this beggar so that I can give to my uh, actual brother or care for my family or etc. So. Uh, we can, the Christian is set free to actually focus on the need of the neighbor as neighbor, mm -hmm. uh, because the neighbor is not being used for spiritual benefit. Mm -hmm. And so then the doctrine of vocation flows out of that, right? That you, you, you say, uh, I have been set free in order to serve my neighbor. Where has God placed me? Like, look, like, like in terms of like actual physical geography, in terms of um, the the giftings that he's given me, in terms of the the time that he's given me, uh, where where has God placed me that where I can where I can maximally serve? Okay, and then that placement is something that um, I can I can do to the fullest, knowing that my salvation is, is secure in Christ, right? As opposed to, um, you know, a medieval system in which you were kind of, you always felt a little insecure about maybe whatever your earthly vocation was, because like, maybe, you know, if you were really spiritual, you probably would give up your vocation to become a monk or something. I mean, that's what the language of vocation meant, right? Was to, to go become a monk. And what Luther wanted to say is no, all these forms of service in society, whether it's in politics, whether it's starting a business, whether it's farming, whether it's law, whatever, uh, all of those are equally ways of serving your neighbor because uh, your spiritual status is assured mm -hmm. through the gospel of justification. Mm -hmm. Remind me of that Second Corinthians, I think it's chapter nine from Second Corinthians, uh, how God loves the cheerful giver. Uh, and not the one who who uh, gives under compulsion or coercion. It's like it's like we're entrusted, right? Uh, we're entrusted to serve rather than expected to serve our neighbor. Um, so, uh, oh, Stephen, you had a yeah, no, no, I, yeah. Um, so you set you set the book up um, to kind of offer a getting back to Luther's view um, of two kingdoms and kind of rescue it from some more modern uh, interpretations that you feel have gone astray. Um, it occurs to me, you said this multiple times in the book, that the society that Luther was uh, living in and was, was writing about and talking uh, in these terms too, uh, was basically coterminous with the church, that everybody was part of a church or the church, and, um, and we don't live in that world anymore. It, you think that the shift of our society is what's caused these confusing uh, interpretations to pop up? Or what do you think the uh, result or the uh, reason for that is? Yeah, um, no, I, I don't think that it's the, you know, the shift in the kind of uh, religious affiliations of, in society that, that have caused that. I mean, I, I think it's just... It's just part of that historical amnesia. It was just one of those doctrines people stopped talking about, and then they tried to dig back up, and they kind of lost the categories to make sense of it properly. Uh, but I mean, I, I do think it is. I think it's 
True. Part of the reason they couldn't make sense of it properly when they did dig it back up is because they are assuming a privatized church. They don't have an idea of what a, a public church would look like. And so then if you assume a privatized church, because that's what you've been operating with, then you see this language and you think, oh, spiritual kingdom, that must refer to the church as an institution. And temporal kingdom, that must refer to the um, the society or the state. Uh, and, and we live... And in our context, the state is kind of secular. Uh, so temporal kingdom must be secular. Spiritual kingdom must be religious, right? And so that's, you know, the, so the modern retrieval of two kingdoms theology um, is then reads back in the kind of framework of modern liberalism into the doctrine. And what it does is it, is it yeah, it institutionalizes the distinction. This comes back to what I was saying. The language of kingdoms in fact, can lead us astray because it makes us think in terms of a sort of spatial separation. There's a border. And so we say, okay, spiritual kingdom is the institutional church. We know what the boundaries of that are, right? It's kind of it's defined as an institution and uh, it has legal boundaries. Um, and then the institutional state, that's the temporal kingdom. Now, the problem with framing it that way is, well, in point of fact, those, if we're looking for neat dividing lines, they don't actually exist there. You can, um, I mean, there is a legal definition to what counts as institutional church, but it's different in different societies. <laughs> there are still legally established churches. So are those, does, is the boundaries of the spiritual kingdom different in England versus what they are in America? If it's a theological distinction, it doesn't seem like it should be. Uh, Plus, there's all kinds of things that aren't, you know, the, the, the Christian, that is the Christian life in society, say, I don't know, for instance, you know, starting a nonprofit like the Davna Institute, is that a temporal kingdom thing? Uh, they would say, oh, yeah, it is, because it's not part of the uh, institutional church. But it's also not part of the state. Um, and what about, you know, what about a missionary agency, right? So, uh, the, the, it becomes very difficult to parse. Well, why is where exactly are these boundaries when you're trying to do it in this boundary drawing way? And moreover, what you do is you, when you, you take the reformational language and you you try to put it in that uh, institutional form, it creates a serious problem because, as I said, in the reformational understanding, it's mapped on to understanding the sola scriptura. The spiritual kingdom is the realm in which scripture alone is operative. Scripture tells you everything you need to need, everything you need to know, and nothing else has anything to contribute, in fact, to your knowledge of the, the gospel. Whereas the temporal kingdom, uh, scripture functions as one authority alongside alongside others. So if you map this in institutional terms, um, what it does is it says that the in the life of the institutional church is comprehensively governed by scripture. And you don't need any other source of knowledge there, which is just sort of obviously not the case because if you're a church treasurer, you know, you, you, need, you need to know some sound financial principles. You might need to know how to use QuickBooks. You know, you might need to know if your church has an investment account, you need to know something about, you know, um, there, there are all sorts of functions within the life of the institutional church that require worldly wisdom. Mm -hmm. 
that's because they're temporal kingdom issues in the reformational understanding. But if you think they're spiritual kingdom issues, then you think, oh, well, we need to have a Bible verse for this. And if we don't have a Bible verse for it, then we have no source of guidance. Right. Uh, you know, in the book, how like a lot of, um, unfortunately, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of, when a lot of error occurs in the life of the church, a lot of times maybe it's due to a uh, improper blending of like the two kingdoms. Um, and I'm curious in what, cause, cause a lot of, you know, a lot of people not really knowing about this teaching and a lot of, you know, it's not common language or central teaching for a lot of Christians in their churches. Um, you know, obviously if two, two kingdoms basically posits that never, that God is above his entire creation and all of the world, um, obviously, even though there's these different realms, um, why would, for instance, theocracy, this is a question Stephen and I were talking about before the episode, why would like something like a theocracy, um, I guess, I know that might be a more modern concept, but why would like, why, why, why would the theocracy be in a proper or an improper blending of the two kingdoms. I guess we, we could say like the, the complete separation of church and state where religion is like almost persecuted or like relegated to such a private sphere. It can't be part of the public square at all. That would be an improper blending, but uh, also theocracy would too. So I guess, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on how are we defining theocracy? Well, I guess a state who bases its laws on a religious text. Okay, state that bases its laws on a religious text. Right. Yeah. So I guess Sharia was Sharia. Yeah. Right. Like and a, then, well, yeah. then the question would be, what do we mean by bases on? Right. So, you know, the, the classical Protestant understanding of this would be to say that, um, for instance, well, if we're talking about civil laws, what guidance do we have in Scripture regarding civil laws? Well, it's all it's all pretty much in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Um, the new, I mean, the New Testament shed some interesting light on the the limits the limits of of the state uh but it doesn't it doesn't give you guidance for lawmaking really so we go to the old testament old testament israel we have a lot of laws governing old testament israel are those the laws that are supposed to govern a christian state well no um you know yes and no would be the answer uh yes in as much as those laws are just laws proceeding from the mouth of god that are that are the they are divinely authorized applications of the natural law to a particular historical context. Uh, but it's a different historical context than ours. And therefore, those laws should be consulted. They should be consulted when framing laws for a Christian nation. But mm. they shouldn't be, uh, I mean, they're, 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 it's going to look different. It should look different. So... Right. So I would say, you know, to that extent, um, a Christian shouldn't advocate a theocracy. Or, you know, we, we wouldn't we would not advocate theonomy. Theonomy is the, the view that we should just take the laws of the Old Testament as normative for lawmaking now. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember I you notice I use that language, Christian nation or Christian state. Many people would say even to speak in those terms, that's a you know, that's a, a theocracy. And, and I realize I'm kind of imposing the. Uh the whole idea of a liberal secular democracy was even foreign to when two kingdoms teaching was originally developed. So it is, it is, um, 
yeah, sorry, but yeah. Um, so I mean, so it would be a confusion of the two kingdoms to think that the scripture was supposed to uh, comprehensively govern the laws, the civil laws, right? Because mm-hmm. that's applying the, the wrong, the, basically applying sola scriptura to the wrong domain. Uh, that said, um, I would say, so on the other extreme, the modern advocates of two kingdoms would say that, or many of the modern advocates of two kingdoms would say effectively that uh, no, a state should not have any religious affiliation, should not promote Christianity in any way, because that is the business of the spiritual kingdom. Mm-hmm. The spiritual kingdom, the church, is supposed to promote the gospel. And if the state tries to do so, however indirectly, it's meddling in the church's business. Mm-hmm. And that's not um, it's not the classical understanding, because it understands that human beings are our body and soul, and those two things are closely tied together. And if you think that, <laughs> I mean, basically, it's as simple as this. If you think that Christianity is true, and it's good for the soul, then you're also going to believe that it's actually good for the body that uh, Christian people are going to be better people. Mm-hmm. And if you're a smart ruler, you're going to want your people to be better people and to kill each other less often and to, you know, steal less often and be more generous and be more obedient, law abiding and so on. And so for all those reasons, um, you're going to, you're going to want to promote Christianity because um, you recognize it's good for your people and God's going to, you know, bless your people more if they're Christian. So, Obviously, the state does that in an indirect way that uh, doesn't shouldn't usurp the functions of the church. Mm-hmm. But there's a natural complementarity there that I think our ancestors recognized. And that I think, I mean, as, as much as we sort of pretend to deny it, it's sort of uh, it's, it's coming back into the back door. Right. I mean, what we witness nowadays is with progressivism is is kind of openly religious in its claims about um i mean it's, it's really it's it's a, it's yeah. a new it's become it a new has religion. A, it has a teleology it has an eschaton yeah it's and, it's, and, it, seeks, and yeah. it seeks to use the laws to promote that religious understanding because it understands these things aren't separable right it has its own version of original sin even some some social commentators i've heard say, yeah you know so yeah um um so uh i was going to ask um you know, you spoke a little bit about how the two kingdoms applies in your book to different um, to the to the life of the institutional church, uh, to how Christians go about their lives as citizens of a country. But you also said interesting stuff about pastors. Um, uh, you speak a lot about how people in ordained ministry, people's pastors, preachers who deliver the word on a daily basis um, to their congregation, that they're always that they're always constantly navigating this uh intersection of two kingdoms how so how does one in this role in the office of a pastor of a preacher how do they find themselves in this unique position of having to navigate uh the two realms the the two Mm -hmm. um yeah how how does that really play out for or how you know yeah i think this is super important for pastors because i think that the reality is um i mean it's less perhaps less so today and it used to be because people just go, you know, to the internet or their favorite podcast or whatever um, for so many answers. But I think it's still the case that in most, you know, health healthy church communities, 
people look to the pastor as an authority figure, as a guide for any number of questions that they might be having. I mean, they might, you know, they go to him for hopefully certainly go to him for spiritual counsel and go to him maybe for, you know, marital counseling. And, uh, but they even might go to him for, you know, just like, Hey, I'm trying to figure out which job, you know, I've got these two job offers, what should I do? Or, you know, um, how can you help me? I'm got questions about how to educate my kids. And, you know, the, pastor has people constantly going to him asking him all sorts of practical questions mm-hmm. and there are, there are two temptations here um one would be to imagine that um well he's supposed to be the bible answer man mm-hmm. and the bible's supposed to have an answer for everything and so i'm going to try to find you a bible verse that uh speaks to your situation and, um, you know, there's going to be a couple problems there. First of all, it might well be quite a stretch and not really applied to their situation. So it might not be that illuminating. Uh, but even, you know, perhaps more dangerously, you find a Bible verse that maybe seems to apply to the situation. And then because it's a Bible verse, your pastor told you it like now, I mean, you got to do it right. You ask your, you ask your pastor for practical advice about, you know, which job to take. He gives you a Bible verse. Okay, now God is, I have, you know, I have a command from God. And so I feel conscience bound to, uh, to to decide X rather than Y. So that's a danger, right? Where the pastor ends up binding people's consciences in matters that are actually beyond his expertise, beyond what he, he has real uh, knowledge of or, or, or he can apply scripture reliably to. Uh, the other danger would be a pastor that, you know, sort of takes a minimalist view and he's really afraid of doing that. And so you go to him for advice about anything. And he says, well, I mean, I can't, I don't know. I, I, that's not my area. You know, I can, I can exegete Galatians one for you. You know, let's talk, you know, let's, I can invite you to a Bible study, but I can't give you any wisdom on, you know, whether you should send your kids to public school or not, or, um, you know, how you should, how you should think about your finances or whatever. Right. I think the rea- the reality has to be that uh, the pastor is both in sort of one-on-one conversations and in his preaching. In preaching, you you want to make some applications, uh, and to make applications, you kind of got to get into some concrete details. So the pastor needs to be able to speak the wisdom of the Word of God into every area of life. But I use that word wisdom. He has to be able to do that as wisdom and not as law. Right? He needs right. to be able to say. Uh, you know, here's what scripture says for certain. Here's what it says, like, absolutely, you shall do, you shall not do. Here's me trying to apply scriptural wisdom to this area that I recognize I'm not an expert in. So take my wisdom and then go ask somebody else who has a lot of wisdom about this particular area, right? So I think uh, the two kingdoms framework enables pastors to to sort of be able to put on those two hats. Say, okay, here's the answer I can give you, um, speaking kind of in a spiritual kingdom sense as like, thus saith the Lord. Here's what I can't tell you with any certainty, but I think I do still have some wisdom to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a quick uh, follow-up. I've got a few minutes left here. Um, but uh, you mentioned church discipline uh, in, in the book and how that applies and how it's especially tricky um, to navigate for in a two, uh, two kingdoms kind of framework. 
Um, you mentioned that uh, the church uh, ministers or you know, elders or whatever are attempting to make a definitive statement about the hidden inward spiritual state of a church member. And I, that, that struck me because I've only ever seen church discipline done um, as, it has ex, as the situation has externalities, right? Um, it's going to be the person who's, you know, so, is as light as the person's not been attending as regularly and maybe slipping off, right? But that seems pretty outward. Obviously, anything to do with, um, you know, a man mistreating his family or something like that. Um, in what way are, uh, is this church discipline, you know, are ministers doing that or should they do that in a two, in a two kingdoms framework to look into the person's soul and try and make those kind of judgments? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's where the framework can be helpful in saying, um, in, in cautioning pastors that not to try to, um, you know, not to try to make a judgment about the actual spiritual state of the person. Um, they can say, look, based on what we're seeing of your life, uh, you're not living like a good Christian here. And so it is not, uh, you know, minimally speaking, we can, like, we, minimally we can say, you know, your continued uh, participation in the life of the church here is, is, is having harmful consequences to all your fellow believers. Um, but we also think that it looks, you know, it looks like if you, if you're an unrepentant sin, then your continued participation in the sacraments, whatever is a way of eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Right. So for your sake and for the sake of your, of the community at large, we need to separate you from the sacrament or even maybe separate you from the life of the church as a whole. But, but we are doing that as the visible church in the visible church for the visible church. Uh, and um, certainly, you know, we, we hope and pray that you'll come to repentance and full restoration, but even if you don't, that doesn't mean if you, if you die under church discipline, right. It's, this is, I mean, the Protestant understanding as opposed to the Roman Catholic understanding. If you, you know, if you die under excommunication in the Roman Catholic church, you've died out of a state of grace. So you are cut off, not just from the, in, the visible church, but from the invisible church. The Protestant says, no, no, you, if you died cut off from the visible church, but your heart was right with God in ways that weren't apparent to us, then great. We, we look forward to meeting you in, in heaven, right? Um, but I think, and I think, I think many pastors get that, and they do understand that distinction. They understand that church discipline has, has that kind of, as you say, external focus only. Uh, I think there's sometimes a temptation, though, to blur those lines um, and think of it as a way of think of it in more, you know, medieval Roman Catholic terms. Mm -hmm. um, I know we're about to go. It's just all right. I wanted to ask you kind of a wrap up question. Um, kind, of, kind of just to I'd like to give it because I know there's different options. I mean, two kingdoms as far as like when theology and social ethics intersect and, and when. There's different philosophies. There's there's, there's uh, other alternatives to to the two kingdoms framework, which uh, has been a longstanding teaching in the Protestant tradition. Um, your book mentions how um, that one alternative would be like a type of public theology um, espoused by. Uh, you gave a few theologians, but one of them was J. Came James K. A. Smith, who I, I know has been deemed a very important public uh, theologian. I 
I'm not too familiar with them. I have some colleagues who are, who are big fans, but um, how um, I, so I guess like, I don't really know much about what, what school, what that school teaches as far as like um, theology and ethics, but like, why would you say, let's just use them as an example. Why would you say, why does two kingdoms speak to you? Um, and, And why do you prefer that as, as, the best approach to theology and ethics, I guess I would ask. Yeah, well, I'm trying to think what I may have said about James K. Smith, and he's, of course, come, gone, he's moved away since then. He's definitely become much more openly progressive. Um, I guess, I guess you kind of, I'm reading the book, you kind of linked it to Kuiper's theology, yeah. of transforming the various spheres. This is yeah, from- okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Society by grounding them upon the fundamental ideas of a Christian worldview would be their approach. Yeah. yeah. So, um, right. So, I mean, what I would, what I would try to position two kingdoms is, is kind of middle way between on the one hand, the view that I was the, the kind of the modern two kingdoms kind of view that you see like David Vendron and that sees this sort of strict boundary separation. You have the spiritual kingdom, you have the temporal kingdom, uh, you got scripture, you got nature, you know, ne'er the two shall meet. You don't want um, the, you just don't see the church filtering out into society. Uh, and you don't see the concerns of the broader society impinging on the church. They just kind of remain hermetically sealed. So that's obviously, or I mean, to me, that's obviously a problem. Uh, on the other end, though, is the Kuyperian framework, which emphasizes that the church is here to transform the culture. The church is here to redeem and renew the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, scripture spills over into all of life, right? As opposed to scripture doesn't spill over at all. Scripture spills over everything. Um, so, and what that tends to do, um, I think it can go a number of different ways, but I mean, for one thing, by blurring the boundaries, it, it can create a kind of two-way street. And this is definitely the case of someone like James K. Smith, where in theory, in theory, it says scripture is transforming culture. But if you're if you're blurring scripture and culture too close together, then it can easily go the other way, in which culture is transforming scripture. That is to say, um, you're trying to make if you're if you're always trying to make the gospel culturally relevant, if that's the focus, then the temptation is going to be to take your marching orders from the culture and to twist scripture to fit that, right? So I mean, so someone like James K. Smith, who's become like openly gay affirming, um, I think is an example of that allowing the culture to kind of set the priorities for how scriptures to be read. Even if you don't do that, if you keep the the influence flowing in the right direction, I think there's still a danger of um, a kind of a kind of Christian triumphalism that says, um, you know, because we got the Bible, uh, we're here to you know solve all the world's problems, and we're gonna and we're gonna remake every area of life in obedience to Christ. And forgetting that, you know, I mean, the class, you know, like it, when you're when you're hiring a plumber, you don't really care if the yeah, right, I, you know, you just want to make sure he knows how to unclog toilets, and and even a lot, you know, 
and even if you're if you're voting for a president, it matters. The moral issues matter a lot more. But at some point, it's like you know, especially like in wartime or whatever, it's like you know what, person who can get the job done is is who I want. Yeah. And so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of worldly wisdom uh, that that just comes with what we'd say with natural law that might be actually in many cases, in many cultural issues, more important than how good is your theology. And I think the Kuyperian, as I say, that on the one hand, the David Vandrian approach says like, if theology doesn't impact culture at all, theology just remains within the four walls of the church. That's not right. But if theology is over, if, if culture is overly theologized, then you don't really have space to say, um, you know, the the norms for how to do this job well uh, may not come from scripture. They may just come from attentive observation of the world. Right. And I think that, that would also lead to, I mean, maybe what you see in medieval Christendom, um, all the occupations and the different walks of life people have is kind of devalued because it's not as seen as good as a religious vocation, quote unquote. Um, I guess you could possibly get that too out of following the that Kyperian type of model. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Kyperian thing goes, there's many different variations of it. And some of them are, I mean, Al Walter's book, Creation Regained, is, is actually really good. And I think actually pretty consistent with the kind of two kingdoms theology I'm articulating. Um, so, you know, just, but it depends who you're talking about. I'll um, put a show note. What's the book again? Creation Regained. Okay. I'll put a show note for that. Um, as well as some other things we've mentioned on here. So, uh, Brad, thank, I, I know you need to get going, but um, thank you for coming on the show um, and sharing with us about uh, your work and your research on two kingdoms and just telling us about what that teaching entails and its application. So thank you. Thanks. My pleasure. Yeah.